Good morning, everyone. The reading today is from Mark chapter 10, and it starts at verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Thanks, Chris. Well, friends, uh, I spend as little time on social media as I can, because it is just so full of the weird and the extreme, right? A couple of weeks ago, uh, Matt was sharing with us that um, he had pop up on his Facebook uh, some social media influencer. You remember it was when Matt was talking about, you know, who do you listen to? Uh, trying to sell him egg dispensers because we all need egg dispensers. Um, my weird moment recently was uh, this little video that popped up and I think it's probably because I lingered too long on a video of some very expensive sports car driving ridiculously fast through some amazing scenery. I think it was in the south of France or something like that. Just, just don't linger on videos, right? Like, it's, why would you? 
this is why I don't spend time on it. But uh, Because then, I read this video that I normally wouldn't pay any attention to, except I'd been thinking about today's sermon, and there was something about it that just kind of caught my attention. Because, run with this, weird video, right? It's this guy, dressed pretty casual, just trackies, like he's walked out of the gym and he's wandering down. And actually, he's just being a pain. He's trying to talk to pretty girls. And just being a pain, talking to pretty girls as he walks down the footpath. And unsurprisingly, they're just fobbing him off, as they should, really. Until, and he's been thoughtful about this, he's obviously got a mate, you know, who knows how much these things are staged, right? I don't know. But at any point, at any rate, he's thought about this as he's talking to the pretty girl. He's got his very expensive, I don't know what it is, sports car parked just a little bit further up. See, that was my mistake, right? I looked at a movie, of a, a little film of a sports car, and now they're trying to sell me one because this guy who's getting fobbed off by pretty girls then just pulls his keys out as he's walking along, hassling her, presses the button, it goes bleep, lights flash, door kind of automatically opens, and all of a sudden she's very interested to talk to him. I thought, really? Is there something about the way the algorithm might reads my reading patterns that it thinks that I need a fancy sports car to find a pretty girl? I don't know. Let's not analyse that at all. <laughs> but this quirky little video caught my attention because it sums up just how much our society is driven by status. Because what is that car? Terribly uncomfortable to driving. But it's a symbol of status that this guy's actually made it, that somehow, despite the lousy gym attire, he might be worth connecting with. And our, our world kind of is driven by this. Very rarely, kind of as blunt and obvious as that. And yet we don't have to pause and think very much about the way advertising grabs us because it wants to show us a life of status, a life of respectability. Is it our cars? Is it the house? Is it our holidays? I was driving past the bus um, the other day, literally the bus with the, the banner on it for a private school. I can't register with me quite where it was or how it was advertised, but the hook for me was that I want to send my kids there because then not only do I know that I've made it, but everyone knows that I made it because they're in that uniform. It's the water that we swim in. It is so everywhere that I don't think we often realise it until someone points it out to us. Every now and then we might see it down at the supermarket. We see how people are treated differently because of the way that they're dressed. There are outward markers of status that perhaps they haven't made it. They're struggling. In my previous work as a general practitioner, as I reflected on this, I thought, yeah, I used to see it in the GP clinic or more actually honestly in the room, when someone who out there in the waiting room seemed to have it all together, with all of their outward signs of having made it, would come into the room and lay bare their deep anxieties that they were wrestling with. Not because life would be less comfortable if they didn't live in that house or drive that car, but because of the desperate need to try and hold it all together, to keep up, to be enough. And it's exhausting trying to be enough. I think it's often actually pretty scary, the sort of thing that keeps people awake at night. It's consuming, even if we don't realise it, that we are caught up in it. Through so much of our days and our lives, the way that we think about work and education and health and lifestyle, so much of it is bound up with the need to be enough, to, to attain that status. And we rarely pause to wonder if there is a better way 
And it's into this world that Jesus spoke of a very different kind of kingdom. His kingdom, that is a kingdom that values people as people, not as contributors, not as those who've done enough to merit their entry. As we've just read, this is the kind of kingdom that can only be received and entered, not claimed and built. I've called this sermon today Cross-Shaped Community. Um, We've got a very simple outline on the website today. Um, Last week we had all sorts of extra reading. This week, three very simple points. Because there's a simple idea here that Jesus is showing us cross-shaped community. And it helps us to see that the good news of Jesus is not only true, but it works. It is good. Now, not in the sense of offering some great self-help technique to This is how you enter into the utopian existence of everything always being great and with peace and tranquility. I mean, have you seen church? (laughs) Like God brings together a messed up bunch of people like us and we're going to butt heads and rub each other the wrong way at various different points. But Jesus shows us that his kingdom is very different to the world. And this difference comes through most clearly when we learn about how we enter his kingdom that then becomes the pattern for how we live in his kingdom. And in both the entry and the living, we see that it has everything to do with receiving a gift and nothing to do with our claim based on our status. So let's dive in. First, as Mark takes us with Jesus on his journey to the cross, we read about the upside-down kingdom of God. That's the upside-down kingdom of God. If we've been reading through Mark's Gospel, last week came to a very abrupt kind of ending, a very abrupt conclusion to a confronting discussion about divorce and remarriage. But we need to remember what triggered that conversation. If you've got your Bible open, you might like to look back to the start of chapter 10 and we see that Jesus began a conversation with some Pharisees, some religious leaders, these religious elite asking, is it lawful? That was the way that they approached God. Is it lawful? What can I get away with? What's permitted? It's an attitude to God's law that sought to clarify, what would get me kicked out of the kingdom? That's the mindset they had. I'm assuming I'm in. I've got a claim to it. What's going to get me kicked out of the kingdom? And Jesus' rebuke was was pretty stern. Step back from trying to work out how close you can get to the edge and instead turn around and look at the very heart of God. Allow his heart to inform your heart instead of assuming that you're in and working out, well, how close to the fence can I get before I get kicked out? And so that then kind of, it feels like a really abrupt shift into what we've read today. But as we'll see, they're actually quite connected because verse 13, people were bringing children to Jesus so that he might hold them and by implication, bless them. And what did the disciples do? They rebuked him. And there's probably a whole bunch of good reasons why the disciples would rebuke those kids and their parents and say, come on, Jesus is really busy. He doesn't have time for toddlers. Jesus is really tired. He hasn't got the energy to keep up with the school kids. There might have been all sorts of good reasons. But underlying this, you cannot get past the simple attitude that Jesus has got more important things to do. He's too tired, he's too busy. He's doing other stuff, but that's the important stuff, not these kids. And verse 14, Jesus was indignant. Not a word that we use very often. Not a word used to describe Jesus very often either. All the way through Mark's Gospel, he's been passionate, 
But we've only seen him get angry when he ran into leprosy and, and he was just angry with compassion at the impact of that horrible disease. He got angry with some religious leaders who were just hard-hearted and showed no compassion for the needy and the vulnerable. And here, he's indignant. And the things that he gets angry about help us to see his heart. Here he's angry for the kids. They are important enough to get angry about. And verse 14, a really striking comment. Let the children come, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What is it about kids that God's kingdom would belong to people like children? Various points, uh, people have suggested well, it's, it's surely the innocence of children. Children are innocent and sweet and beautiful and God's kingdom belongs to the innocent one. Have they seen my kids? Kids are hardly innocent. I love them dearly. But Jesus teaches that he came for sinners. So it's actually very clear that it's not that because Jesus came for sinners. So whatever he's saying about children, it's not that they are sinless innocents. Perhaps it's their simplicity, their naivety. We hear the phrase, you know, to have faith like a child, and that's meant to be a good thing because it springs out of Jesus' affirmation here of children. But I think that brings to mind ideas of just sort of a naive acceptance. If you were being cynical to have faith like a child, sounds like an excuse for being gullible. Is God's kingdom for gullible people? Well, I don't think so. Because we've already seen just how, how sharp and incisive Jesus' intellect is and, and the kind of intellectual engagement he invites from others. This isn't about just being simple. And I think the context suggests that Jesus has two things about children on view. First, children don't come on the basis of status. For one thing, that was the very basic reason they couldn't get into Jesus, because they didn't have the status. The disciples said, no, you're not worthy. You're not important enough to warrant time with Jesus. So it seems that this is pretty closely tied up to, to Jesus' point. The kingdom belongs to people who don't claim status to get in. And the second aspect of, of kind of the immediate context is what follows. Mark has chosen to highlight the really close connection between this engagement with the kids and then the question that we've just read posed by the rich young man. And as we'll see in just a minute, the emphasis there on with the rich young man is the ability to get the job done. He's the kind of guy that can just get it done to secure his own place in the kingdom. And so on this front, the contrast with little children is also obvious. Little children are weak. They lack power. They're vulnerable. They don't have the strength to secure themselves. What is it about childhood? You are dependent. I have four dependents. So status means you can't claim your rights. Power means you can't enforce them. Sorry, if you have power, you can. <laughs> and as we'll see in our world, those two things are pretty closely connected. That those with the resources to get the job done, those with power, are almost always the ones with status. And those with status, well, society kind of gives them this, this power to, to do what they want. That's what our world values. But God's kingdom belongs to a very different kind of people. It turns it upside down. It says, no, it belongs to people like children, humble, not coming on the basis of status, dependent, not coming on the basis of their strength. Jesus is building a very different kind of community, a cross-shaped community. 
And then verse 15, he speaks as though he's got the authority of God. No one should be able to say this except God. Jesus said it 14 times, Mark records it for us. It sounds really simple. Truly, I say to you. To a Jewish person, that's, that's a bit outrageous. Only God speaks the truth. Here Jesus is. Truly, I say to you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. So he underlines his point. The kingdom belongs to people who are humble and dependent like children. And now he says you only get into God's kingdom if you receive it like a child. You receive it. You don't lay claim. Entry into God's kingdom is a gift, not a right. And so to live it out for them, he took the little children in his arms and he blessed them. Jesus bestows on them this profound significance that that they have a status in him, worthy of his blessing, worth his time. They are dignified in his attention. And as a brief side note, this passage, amongst many others, this passage certainly informs our church's attitude to children's ministry, to what's happening out there, to to the people who've worked hard to prepare lessons, who are stepping out of a time in a sermon to spend the time with the kids. Because if Jesus welcomes them, then, then so must we. If he treats them as insiders, his dearly beloved, then so must we. That's the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, where social status means nothing. It's only those who will receive membership as a gift from God who will enter it. And you don't have to pause long to think about how different that is to the world around us. It's the kind of world that the rich young man lived in. And so our attention moves to him because... He gives us an insight into the back-to-front world. If we've seen the upside-down kingdom of God, now we're reminded of the back-to-front world that we live in. Verse 17, Jesus starts on his way because, yes, the kids have held him up, but that's been okay. He's on the road to the cross and a man asked. Came with a question. He's a sincere guy. Mark tells us he's running up to him. He's falling on his knees. He's not afraid to be a bit embarrassed because he's got an important question to ask. Good teacher, he says. That could be flattery. But actually, Jesus just engages with him respectfully and and humbly. I think we've got every reason to see in this guy just a genuine inquiry of Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, brief thought here, Jewish thought. This man's a Jew, they're in a Jewish territory. Jesus is a Jew, Jewish thought. Eternal life equals life in the coming kingdom of God. God's going to bring his kingdom in. It will last for eternity. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's saying, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? So the man's question to Jesus is very closely tied up to what Jesus has just said about the kids. Even though, I mean, he didn't know that because he's just run up and fallen on his knees. He, he, He wasn't part of that conversation. But Mark wants us to see how closely these two things are connected. But before Jesus jumps in with an answer, did you see his Initial response, verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. One level, it's just humility from Jesus. We've got records of other rabbis who corrected their disciples saying, no, 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 you don't call me good. Only God alone is good. But perhaps Jesus is also making a subtle point. No one is good, including you. Because Jesus says, you know the commandments, verse 19. And what, what is rolled out there 
Jesus sets up for him there is commandment five through nine from the the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament of Exodus 20, the most significant summaries of God's law, his will for his people. We've got numbers five through nine set out for us here. And Jesus slightly modifies number 10 instead of saying, don't covet, don't be jealous. He says, don't defraud. What are they all? They are all the outward expression of obedience, right? They're all the things that we do to other people. Don't murder them. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal from them. Honor your mum and dad. Don't defraud them. They're all tangible and they're all related to other people. What does this guy say? Well, yes, I've kept all of these even since I was a youth. Now, that could be arrogance. But on the other hand, that's actually a fairly normal attitude of a devout Jew of the time. It's not that hard to get through life without murdering anyone. I've been doing okay so far. You can even make a pretty good show of honouring mum and dad because no one can see what's going on inside. But back to this man's question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Because I've got the capacity to get it done. You just tell me. What must I do to inherit? To know that I am entitled to it. It is mine for the taking. And Jesus looked at him. Actually, the word there is, is sort of, he really looked at him. And he loved him. It seems to clarify the picture for us that this is a sincere guy. He's got a genuine question. He honestly thinks he's doing okay on the obedience front. And Jesus looks at him and just loves him. And in his love, he says, this is what you lack. This is what is letting you down. Go as much as you have, sell it and give to the poor, and then you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. So go and then follow. Because there's something this guy needs to do. Something that he needs to change before he can follow what does he need to do? He needs to sell and he needs to give. Liquid out those, those, those outward indicators of your success. Move on the Maserati. Ship out of the six-bedroom house in... No, I won't go naming suburbs because people will start getting embarrassed. Liquidate those outward signs of your status that you have made it. He doesn't even necessarily say give it all. He just says give. That's a challenge. And then come follow me. And at this the man's face fell, we read. He went away sad because he had great wealth. How is this one thing? And why does it leave the man sad? It's because of the gaping hole in the Ten Commandments that Jesus has left wide open for us. Jesus said, what were the commandments? Let me give you five through nine and slightly modify ten so that it's the stuff that people can see, the, the outward indicators of your obedience. But he's left out the first four. God said, you will have no God before me. You will have no idols. That is to say, you will worship nothing else in this creation. You will honour my name. You will honour my rest. And in commandment number 10, I will tell you what to do that no one else can see. You will not covet. You'll not keep longing after the things that other people have. That's just a horizontal expression of our worship. You see, this man's wealth reflected what he really worshipped. And Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He didn't rebuke him or put him down or rag on him or point to the crowd and say, look at this loser. No, he loved him. He saw a man stuck in the way of the world and he showed him his great need. This man who was so confident in his obedience when actually his idolatry had been unmasked. 
He needed to change who and what he worshipped. He needed to step back from this sense of status and, and privilege and strength and acknowledge that he was in no way entitled to eternal life. He needed to come to Jesus with empty hands, but instead they were full of the symbols of his status, the things that Jesus said he needed to let go. And the cost of discipleship was too high. Instead of going and returning to Jesus, we simply hear that he goes away sad. And so Jesus says to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And they were amazed because they lived in a society that's not too different from ours, really, that kind of viewed wealth as an indicator of God's blessing. I mean, this guy's Facebook feed, it was, it was full of hashtag blessed. Look at me with my happy family. Look at me in my beautiful house. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> It's actually very closely related to the idea of karma. If they're rich, well, it must be because they've done right and received blessing from God. So how hard is it for the rich to enter? Well, it's harder than a camel getting through the eye of a needle. And let me just put one little children's storybook version of this to bed. Somehow, very sadly, centuries ago, someone made up the idea that maybe there's a gate in Jerusalem it's called the eye of the needle because it's a little bit, it's, it's a small gate, but if a camel really gets down on its knees and you take all its load off, then it can kind of squeeze through. No, that's a fallacy. It's never been true. It's made up by people who want to justify, if I work hard enough, maybe I can get in. I've got a kid's storybook at home that I want to tear it out of, but it would, just, it would spoil the rest of the, the good stories that are really helpfully told either side. This is not just a cute misunderstanding. It's a dangerous lie. That story says that with enough humility and effort, the camel can get in. The rich man can do it. Jesus says, no. You know a camel cannot fit through the eye of a needle. This does not happen. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How hard is it? It is impossible. And the disciples are even more amazed. If it's not just hard... If it's impossible for the rich, then what hope is there for anyone? Because they didn't think, oh yes, it would be particularly hard for the rich, but I suppose it gets easier the more we come down the tax bracket. No, 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 no. They weren't the hardest to get in. They were the most likely to get in because they've already been blessed by God. So if it's impossible for them, who then can be saved? And it's subtle, right? But finally, they're asking the right question. Because they don't say, who then can beat the door down and get themselves in there. No. Who then can be saved? Because we all need someone outside of us to save us. And humanly speaking, Jesus says, yes, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Such as, by implication, saving rich people. And so Jesus shows us that wealth is not necessarily a blessing that opens doors, might open doors in the world, but it does not open the door of the kingdom of God. It can, in fact, be a handicap, a barrier that hinders our access because we lean on it. But it's good for us to see, too, that this isn't just about wealth. Because what do we do? We go, well, my bank balance isn't as big as his. My car's not as fancy as hers, so this must be about them. But wealth is a great indicator of the heart attitude that I deserve to get in because I'm a respected person. I'm a good person. I've got the status credits. 
Wealth raises this challenge in profound ways because of the way our world treats those who have wealth. Let's not diminish that. It's a real challenge. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, says Jesus. But truly, he said, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it as a gift, not a right. Something we receive, we don't claim. And that's got implications for every one of us. I don't know your story, but we see here that for you and for me, cross-shaped discipleship is first and foremost really aware of how undeserving we are. However good we are at keeping those outward commandments, number five through nine, none of us have kept the first four to worship God above all else. And so we enter his kingdom only if we receive it with empty hands. And because that's how we enter the kingdom, that's how we live in it. With no preferential treatment for rich or poor or young or old. I mean, kids, they don't have much to offer. I see the church budget and they're not contributing. (laughs) I see morning tea and I bet your bottom dollar that's where the crumbs are all coming from. Those little kids. Yet we love them, as Jesus does. And the kids are easier to mention because they're out of the building. But in the same way, a cross-shaped community loves everyone. Regardless of how the world views them, views us, views you, because we know that we all come with the same sense of gift rather than right. Now, I had a fair bit to say about Peter's final comments, but I'm going to cut them short in light of the time because Peter spoke up. (laughs) And when Peter speaks up, you think, oh, good, finally, someone says what I was going to say, but was too shy to put my foot in. Peter spoke up and said, we have left everything to follow you. It's a wonderful sort of expression of his devotion, right? And yet the irony of it, of course. Look, Jesus, I've got the status credits. I left the fishing boat behind. Look at James and John. Their dad's really ragging on them because they've dumped the family business to come and be with you. Simon the Zealot, all his mates think he's a sellout and he's hit. We've got the status credits, haven't we? Do you see what he's doing? He's playing the same game as the rich young ruler, the rich, the rich young man, just with a different set of status markers. And goodness me, can't we do that too? And Jesus is gentle in his response. Whatever you think you've given up, God is never in your debt. He is always giving you more of it in a richer, fuller sense. What Jesus lays out for them are all the cultural markers of relational security. Your home, your siblings, your parents, your provision. I could unpack that, but I think we get the idea when Jesus says, I'm not just going to give you like for like and new for old replacement. A hundredfold. It's absurd generosity in the kingdom of God. To be really clear, this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. I am not going to invite you to give $100 to the church in faith that God will return you a hundredfold and you'll get home to the bank account that will show you rich and rolling in it. That's actually reading this entirely the wrong way around. But this is the reality of cross-shaped community. That when a Christian moves here from Sweden, they find themselves amongst family or, or South Africa, your home. And when a, a believer from a Muslim background 
is rejected by their family, they find family in the people of God. And so Jesus promised that this kingdom life, yes, it would come with its persecution. But God will never be in your debt. His blessings overflow. But as Peter needed to learn, they might come in unexpected places. And those who look like they've given up so much will actually realise that status credit doesn't count because we receive as a gift. Always more that could be said. But friends, I want to leave us with that thought lingering in mind as we head into the new year thinking, what does it look like for us to be a cross-shaped community? Knowing that the way that we enter God's kingdom is the very thing that characterises how we live in it. Cross-shaped. Knowing it's a gift because of what Jesus has done for us. Nothing that we can claim or grab for ourselves. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your abundant grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, that we might receive the blessings of the kingdom of the ruler of the universe. Father, we live in a world that just kind of swims in the water of status. And it's, um, it's so easy for us just to get consumed by it that we don't even notice it. And so we pray that as we go from here today, as we chat over a sausage, as we uh, have quiet moments in the week to come, you would help us to see how we get caught up in that too and make us different, Lord. Remind us how we have come to know you through faith in our Lord Jesus, received as a gift. Help us to see how that shapes us as a cross-shaped community, always dependent upon your grace, always humbly aware we have no claim upon it. And may you shine through this, Lord, in a way that others that see it and, and perhaps come and visit or hear about it would be struck, longing to know more about this Jesus who we not only claim is true, but he is so very, very good. And we pray it in his name. Amen.